that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Thank you, Carrie. So how, when did you realize that you were weird? Like, I had a really good clip for that, but when was it, that, or maybe some of you are still in that season where you're trying to convince others you weren't. I say that because uh, if, if your thinking is Adam's getting weird and narrates getting weird, then what I'm, my goal this morning is to really seal your case because it's going to get a little weird, but I hope also meaningful. So if you're here and this is maybe your first time to narrate or it's the first time in church for a while because it's the new year and you're really living into some, some new goals and initiatives and part of that is being here and you're expecting a series that really speaks into just helping you lean into these new practices, we applaud the discipline and frankly everything I've ever been taught and trained to do as a local church leader is start a series this first Sunday in January for us that really appeals to people who are trying to turn over a new leaf and I'm gonna disappoint you this morning. So I'm sorry about that. But next week, we are starting a brand new series. Next slide. It's a series called It Sticks With You and what we're gonna explore is the book of Galatians. Yeah, that was a lot of fun to film in in December, by the way. Anyway, so the the idea is Galatians, some would argue, I'm persuaded by it, the book of Galatians is the oldest book in the Bible, or excuse me, the oldest book in the New Testament, the oldest letter. And really what it speaks into is, I think, the cultural tension of like, how did we arrive with with a belief system that says that God's chief interest is for us to live our lives and at the end of our lives, much like Santa Claus, he judges us whether we're more good than bad and then he sorts us for heaven or hell with the advanced goal of kind of getting us off the planet so he can put us in these kind of final petri dishes, good or bad, for the rest of our lives. It's a cynical view I have. I don't think that's the story and Galatians really speaks to the fact that it's not because what Galatians explores is that God's chief desire was to join us here There's some old theology that would say God was gonna become incarnate in a human even without sin. Like that was always God's desire to join us here. And yet the it sticks with you is it's really hard to step into this new invitation. So that's next week. This week, next slide, uh, we're gonna talk about the Feast of Theophany. Now what the heck is that? Have you ever even heard the word theophany? Uh, theophany, and by the way, in the West, it's called Epiphany. In the West, in the Latin church or the Catholic church and many Anglican churches this morning, what they're reading is the story of the Magi. In the East, it's Theophany. I think next week or next year we'll do uh, the Western version. But here's what Theophany means specifically as the East thinks about it. Next slide. It's a visible manifestation to humanity of God. Okay, so what, what is going on there? Well, let's just look back ever so briefly at what Carrie read so well, but just at the last couple verses. Because in Matthew 3, it wraps up. Uh, I should have underlined that. Uh, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, am I on this? Yeah. Suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and watch for the Trinity here. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So there's three persons going on there. The spirit, 
Which, by the way, part of the meaning behind the spirit there is if, you, if you're familiar with the Noah story, uh, the dove went out and couldn't find land and went out and couldn't find land and then finally came back with an olive branch which indicated there was land. Part of the traditional understanding of this is the dove had been going out and looking for the perfect human and going out and looking for the perfect human and then he found him. But really, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What, the, what, what Theophany speaks to is this was the moment uh, when the Trinity was revealed. Now, before you check out and decide that you're gonna check out a different church next weekend, hold on here for just a second, because I get it. I think it was Augustine who said, you know, 1700 years ago, he said everybody who comes to God comes to God out of a desire to find happiness. Now we could nuance that word happy, different cultures use it in different ways, fulfillment, joyful, whatever. Uh, I'm persuaded by what he's saying there. And I actually think the Trinity can speak into that, that whatever the new year struggle is for you or opportunity, part of what I want to do this morning is go like, how does, how does understanding that God is triune help? Well, how did we get to the Feast of Theophany? Just a little bit of background work. What do you suppose is the oldest celebrated uh, feast or festival or holiday of the early church? What do you suppose is like the, the first major feast day that they ever s- observed? Guesses? Easter, Passover, Pascha, depending on what, what tradition you come from. What do you suppose was second? Uh, the most frequently celebrated feast, the second most frequently celebrated feast. I mean, what would you expect it to be in our culture? Because we go Easter and what else? Christmas. It wasn't Christmas. For hundreds of years, it was Theophany, which technically was Thursday, but we're Protestants, so we kind of mess with things whenever we want to, and we're calling it Sunday. But uh, Theophany is the end of the 12 days of Christmas. Maybe you've heard of the 12 days of Christmas. It's not just a cute song. It was actually the way they celebrated Christmas, and it started with Christmas Day, but the culmination was Theophany. So when I learned that several months ago in my uh, quest towards weirdness, there was just this sense of like, wait a minute, why? And I think part of what's growing in me is there must be a respect for why people from the past did things. I love C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, idea of chronological snobbery where we tend to assume the most recent idea is the best one. So when I heard that Theophany was, was the second most celebrated feast, I thought, well, that's strange. Why would that be? And there was just this commitment to me to go like, let's, let's lean into that. Let's, let's figure that out. Then I learned about the Trinity. Now, if, if you'd asked me a month ago, do you believe in the Trinity? I'd go, yep. And then they, if someone would have said, okay, say something intelligent about it, I'd have went, uh. I mean, how about you? Like, do you believe in the Trinity? Probably if you were baptized in, in, in a Christian context, you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. My question would be like, how does relating to the Trinity, how is it any different than basic deism? You know, deism, this very enlightened enlightenment idea Uh, a lot like Epicureanism, that there's a God somewhere and and this God started things, but mostly this God is far removed, far detached, and doesn't really care about our lives. How is it different than deism? Which really begins to speak to the answer of what makes Christian claims so unique? And to the extent that they're unique, uh, how is our understanding of God unique and our way of relating to God different? How is it different than Jewish people or Muslim people or countless other people, especially in a deistic kind of sense? What if this feast speaks to some of that? The other thing that's been occurring to me is just kind of background and argument for why I think there's value here is, if you think about it, there's lots of things in your yearly calendar that you do 
out of an effort to, to like sit with that idea regularly. I mean, this is what Christmas is all about, right? Like on some level, culturally, we've decided there's some ideas about God from Christmas that are so important that we need to come back to them every year. Easter's similar. But even in your own personal calendar, there's things that you do. There might be a death that you, 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 pay, makes, you give special attention to observing every year or an anniversary or a birthday. Some of you remember when we started getting weird a couple of years ago and we said, hey, we're going to start doing communion every week, we think. And remember, even then, part of the commitment was this wisdom that said, some things, you don't understand them and then do them. And for you, this might be the practice of going to church right now. Sometimes you commit yourself to doing something, and in the doing, you begin to deepen your understanding of it. I mean, there's the concept of going to the gym. There's the concept of eating well. But then there's the understanding that comes with a year or two or three or ten years of doing that. My hope is you're experiencing that as it comes to communion, Eucharist, Lord's table, however, you, whatever phrase you want to use or title you want to give it. I think that's my commitment towards epiphany or theophany, is this idea of, wait a minute, going all the way back to the beginning of Christian history, if, if, if we were to vet, like, what were the things you had to believe to be counted a Christian? There were really only two. The divinity of Christ, that he was God, and the Trinity. And yet, if you're anything like me, 2,000 years later, you're like, I, I don't know, water, vapor, ice, I don't know, there's something about the Trinity. So, if you haven't checked out, thank you. What I'm hoping to do is speak into that. And it starts by saying this. There's ditches on both sides. There's, and there, or, or maybe cliffs. And if you look back in church history, you see that these cliffs are severe. Like sometimes hundreds of years being fought over these very issues and really being sussed out to, to arrive at the, the, the theology that we have today. On one side, you have modalism. Now what is modalism? It's an excessive interest in God's diversity. It, it, it over... I think I got, yeah, I got that backwards. Now I'm second guessing myself. I must not have got it backwards. So, so modalism, maybe you've heard this. Uh, the Holy Spirit is, is like water. It can be ice. Uh, it, it can, I'm pretty sure I got that backwards. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. I'm pretty sure that's backwards. Let's just say there's two things, modalism and tritheism. <laughs> Both of them represent these ditches, and now I'm in my own head. One of them is an overemphasis or an excessive interest in God's unity. The other is an excessive interest in his diversity, and we use all these little weird analogies to try to make sense of it. And this is for me, even as someone who's graduated from a seminary, I check out. Because modalism, which is an excessive interest in God's unity, frankly, it's, it instead, what modalism says is God's not three. God is one, but he shows up in three different ways. And the church has historically went like, no, that's, that's heresy. Tritheism goes the other direction. It goes like, no, no, God is three, but, but they're, they're two distinct. Now, if, if you're like most people, and I know this has been my Christian journey, you just go like, okay, I'm out, like you lost me. I'm just gonna trust like, okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whatever. So how, how do we make sense of this? Well, I wanna show you a picture. Sorry, Bob, I just made your job really difficult. We put up that icon uh, this, this was first painted in 1425 by a Russian. It today is in St. Petersburg. It was, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred years later observed by the Eastern Church as the official icon or image of the Trinity. Now, technically, uh, what's being observed here or what's being painted here is in Genesis 18. 
Some of you may remember there's uh, Abraham and Sarah are paid a visit by three angels. This is sometimes referred to as the Old Testament Trinity, but the church in general has agreed even the Western church, like this is one of the ultimate images of the Trinity. The West has one as well. Maybe we'll talk about that next year. But there's a few things here that, that I think are worth, uh, for me, have just kind of pulled some stuff apart and made some sense of things. First of all, diversity and unity. Uh, go ahead to that next slide. N- notice that all three of them are wearing blue. Uh, now, some of them, the blue is underneath. Some of the blue is over top. But the blue, this is the image of the divine. This speaks to the fact that all three are themselves God. But then notice there's also some diversity. I mean, first of all, they're all the same age. This speaks to the fact that they all come from the same place, that they're, they're all equal. But then they all have three different color garments that speak to their diversity. To the far left, uh, that's God the Father. And what color would you call that person's or God the Father's second article of clothing? The point is, it's kind of not a color. It's almost invisible or indescribable, which speaks to God the Father. In the middle, you have uh, the son who's wearing this brown garment. Now, what do you suppose is the significance of a brown garment? Especially in a culture that didn't know the luxury of the dyes that we know. This is, this is Jesus, a God who put on an earth suit, a God who put on flesh. To the right, you have the Holy Spirit wearing this green garment. What's the significance of that? Well, the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. It's the Spirit who hovered over the deep and the dark in Genesis 1, who then brings things to life. So notice there's diversity and unity built into the Trinity. Think about what's been one of the most difficult, uh, frustrating, important conversations we've had for the last couple years. Maybe, maybe captured most easily, though not always the most respectfully, in this phrase, cancel culture. Like, what have we been exploring as a culture? Well, isn't it have something to do with the fact that, that diversity is important, uh, but too much of it is bad? There's this conversation, I think, that we've been having about, wait a minute, to what extent is diversity good? And here's, as a reflection, I I think one of the things that can come off the surface of what does it mean that God is triune? Well, he's both diverse and unified. What if part of what it means to be human is to live within that struggle? Because on the one hand, we can get ourselves in trouble by expecting everyone to be just like us. Can you relate to that problem? And yet on the other hand, respectfully, I think part of what was being explored in these last couple years is, yeah, but there is a point at which diversity is bad. What if part of what it means to be human isn't to be surprised by this tension, but to know like we follow a God who lives within this tension, created people in his image, and therefore we should expect a healthy mess on this issue. I've been reading this book uh, Ironically, I heard about from an Anglican guy, it's written by, and had to be translated into English because it was written by, I didn't even know they had these, but Pope John Paul II's personal preacher. His name is uh, Renero Cantalamesa, I think is how you say his name. Look at this quote from him. In the East, speaking of Eastern Orthodoxy, pluralism is the departure point and unity is the goal. 
In other words, what they're exploring is that in, in the East, their perspective of God, because they don't have one bishop a la a pope, they have several bishops, so they start from this place of diversity. We can explore next year how in the West it's the opposite. They start from this place of unity and work out to diversity, but in the East he's saying they have this appreciation for the fact that God made creation diverse and calls us to unity. What if part of the value of the Trinity is recognizing that, that to whatever extent that's causing pain for you or your family, your views, your politics, on some level, like it's God's fault. Or better said, it's of God's design. Because within God's self, there's diversity. Notice also their relationality. Part of, and it's hard, you can pull this up on Google. If you just do uh, Trinity icon, you'll find it very quickly, and there's some doctored versions that are maybe a little more seeable, but, but, but notice <coughs> like just the peace within them. If you could see their faces closely, you would see there's just, there's just this contentment, there's this oneness. See, one of the questions that theologians have had to tackle from the very beginning is why did God create? And one faulty or heretical view is because God needed something. But part of what the Trinity depicts is this God is fully fulfilled within God's self. There, there's this relationality, they're, they're together, they're one, they're content with one another. <clears throat> but again, what, what does this tell us about what it means to be human? Uh, my, my current memory verse that I'm working on, and it's really tricky, is, is in John where he, he says to the disciples, hey, hey you guys, remember, like I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and you are in us, and we are in you. See, one understanding of God through the Trinitarian view is that this God is inherently relational. He's not a deist a long ways off. He wants to relate to us, and to be human is to exist in relationship. It's part of what I love about Dinner for Eight. That, that, that this kind of one-man wrecking crew, which is so prevalent for us, especially in the West in Montana, it's, it's, it's not God's design. That this God calls us into relationship, which maybe speaks to why when we suffer, when we suffer together, it, it just hurts less. Or, or maybe it speaks to why, why certain realities in life can hurt so darn much. Because this God is inherently relational and you see that in just that they're being enamored in one another. Last, uh, notice the honoring of one another. Uh, there's be lots of ways to, to, to phrase that, but, but the Father is like fully lost in the Spirit and the Son. And the Son fully lost in the Father and, and the Spirit fully lost in the Father and the Son. Part of what th where this has had meaning for me is I, I think when I would read about Jesus and he would say things like the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve others, I had this understanding of like, wait, well, that's so cool that like Jesus came to serve. What I don't think I fully understood and I think what the Trinitarian view of God helps us understand is that's not something Jesus did. That's who God is that even within the Godhead, you have this intense honoring of the other parts, this completely lost in the others. This, this, the, the Father just wants people to know 
the Spirit and the Son, and the Son just wants people to know the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit just wants people to know the Spirit and uh, the Son and the Father. This Jesus who showed up and, and put a towel over his arm and served, it turns out this isn't something God did. This is who God is. Which again, if, if we're asking this question like, okay, so how, how can the Trinity help us in our move towards happiness? Well, what if it speaks not only to a God who, who, who projects to us that unity and diversity is part of his creative design and living within that tension is always a worthwhile goal? What if it speaks not just to a God who's inherently relational, but, but what if it speaks to the fact that like, happiness, fulfillment, contentment, it's, it's fundamentally found in, in giving your life away for others. And, and the life, like in the, in the West, we're often kind of faced with this, this dilemma of like, what do I do with I, my life? And I, I think actually one of the real gifts of COVID is it's, it's re-provoked this conversation around vocation. Like, is everything about maximizing earning potential? Is everything about like the, the extent to which your job will fund the life you want, and to what extent is, is it about finding something to do with your life that actually adds value to, to others? Uh, that same uh, Cantala Mesa guy, he, he said it this way, next slide. He says, there's only one place in the world where the rule love your neighbor as yourself is perfectly put into practice, and that is in the Trinity. What does it look like, I think, is what the Trinity is ultimately bringing to the surface to follow a God who's diverse and yet values unity, who calls us into relationship, who calls us into an existence that fundamentally defers to the other. Uh, over the break, and as the band comes back up here, we're just gonna give you a chance to reflect through communion, but one, one last thought as they do that. Over the break, <coughs> my, my wife and I at one point were driving somewhere and some friends recommended to me several months ago this book called, I think it's called The History of the World, and it's this unique look at human history, uh, I guess, without, the, without some of the isms <coughs> of, of different things involved. And at one point in this audiobook, she's, she's, this woman is describing uh, pre-recorded history humanity. And she said something that I was reminded of this week when I was in the office, because I got back to the office on Tuesday, and my bonsai trees were a little parched. I hadn't been there for a week, and even the cactus were going like, dude. So I... I went to the, in, into the workroom where we have a sink and I keep an empty uh, gallon milk jug in there and I was filling it up and I, as it was filling up, I instantly became annoyed. Like, I can't believe this is, gonna, this is taking forever. And it was then that I remembered this audiobook that I'd listened to because in that audiobook, this woman had said, she said, for most humans in most of human history, the vast majority of their lives were spent finding, securing, and collecting water. Like that was the sum total of what you did as a human. And it just struck me like, and I'm annoyed that I'm gonna, I'm gonna do in 30 seconds what most humans who ever lived, like that was the luxury of their lives. And it makes me think a little bit about this Trinity thing. Because Jesus at one point said of John the Baptist, he said, uh, he's the best human who's ever been born of a woman. Unless you're born after me, then everyone's better than him. What's going on there? Well, he's speaking to the privilege that we have in living on the other side of the incarnation and everything we learn about God because of Christ. And I wonder if the Trinity doesn't work a little like this. <clears throat> that lest we take it for granted, we reflect on the fact that for most of human history, 
Understanding God is triune was a luxury they didn't have, and yet we do. And so we live within a God who calls us into diversity and unity, who calls us into relationship, and calls us into serving one another. And my hope is that just, if nothing else, one, one aspect of that speaks to the opportunity in your life, the pain in your life, the, the calling of God in your life. So we're gonna continue to sing. We're gonna give you a chance to take communion with us. If you've not done that before, I think we can do it without weirding you out. So there'll be bread, both gluten-free and, and regular gluten, or I don't know, what do you call pro-gluten? Pro-gluten and gluten-free bread over here. And then there's <coughs> wine and juice over here. And we'll go run one row at a time and just loop forward. And then once you have your bread and wine, you just hold on to it, and Carrie's gonna jump up here and lead us through it together. But also a reminder that part of the design of this time is, is to create space for God, uh, to speak into your life about your own brokenness, your own sin, to receive that forgiveness, to know that you are forgiven. And then that part of what we're doing is, is welcoming God into our lives, recognizing that uh, the, the God journey is not just this try-hard journey, but it's one where God wants to dwell in us, fittingly, uh, through his spirit. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into those communion. God, thanks so much for just this kind of tip of the iceberg reminder of this Trinity thing matters. And if we sit with it, it, it has huge impact on how we relate to you and how we relate to one another. God, I pray that in these next few moments uh, that you would speak into our lives in whatever ways you need to and want to and that we'd have the courage to be receptive of that. Lord, I also pray that you'd take our ordinary, everyday lives and use them for your purposes, your triune purposes. And God, to that extent that you'd take this ordinary, everyday bread and wine and make it food uh, from you to fuel uh, the life you invite us into with you. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. 